Hello and welcome to the PhD Life Raft podcast. I'm Emma Brzezinski and today I'm talking to the wonderful Robert Romanishan. We're talking about his book, The Wounded Researcher, and the notion of soul work within research. We're talking about being shaped by the research project. We talk about research as unfinished business. And we also talk about the importance of listening to your dreams. So I do hope you enjoy this episode. I am so delighted, and as I've already confessed, a little bit starstruck to be um, to be meeting you because I just love your work so much. Um, and we're going to talk more about um, your work, particularly the Wounded Researcher uh, book, in a little while. Um, but first of all, thank you for being here. Um, and we always start with asking people about their own journeys um in graduate school so can you tell us a little bit about your journey yeah of course um i went to duquesne university in 1964 uh pittsburgh to uh to be in the newly uh organized program doctoral program in uh, existential phenomenology um, in the humanistic tradition. And when I arrived there, um, this was about 64, and I started to work on my doctoral dissertation around 1968. So I started in 64, I went through a master's, um, and then was in, admitted into the PhD program. And I had already a, a PhD dissertation lined up. Right. But the morning that I was driving to the hospital where I was doing an internship, I heard the news from the night before that Robert Kennedy had been assassinated in Los Angeles. Amazing. And I thought, well, geez, I've got to, to do something on this issue. And I decided uh, for various other reasons that I would do a study on racism. Um, so that was very early on before the racial issue became a really divisive uh, theme in this country, as it should be, not divisive, but a, a theme. Right. And uh, I did a, a study on uh, black attitudes toward whites and white attitudes toward blacks. Um, and the point of the story then in response to your question is that I didn't choose the topic so much as it chose me. An event in the world touched something in me and so I was led away from an original topic that I wanted to do into a topic 
that wanted me to be in service to it. Many years later, that became a theme of the wounded researcher. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, we're going to come into that. So this sense of, which I love, that your research chooses you. Your research chooses you. So tell us a little bit more then about how you kind of um, work with that theme in, um, in your book. Uh, in the wounded research or yeah, how I actually yeah. did the dissertation? Um, well, I get. I, I, I was thinking in terms of the wounded researcher, in terms of uh, yeah. that reflection on. Well, uh, so that was in 1968-69, and I finished my doctoral dissertation in 1970 with that dissertation. And then I wanted to teach, and uh, it turned out that uh, I got this offer from Pacifica Graduate Institute. First, first I went to the University of Dallas, but then that was in Texas, and I wanted to kind of leave Texas at that point. I got this offer to come out to Pacifica in 1992. And at that point, Pacifica Graduate Institute uh, was beginning a doctoral program. And the founder of the Institute invited me because he said, uh, we need somebody who can build an approach to research for a PhD clinical degree that is in line with the motto of the school, to be in service to the soul of the world. And I knew nothing really about research then, apart from having done my dissertation. Mm. And I really wasn't interested in research. I'm more interested in theoretical ideas and therapy, et cetera, and literature and the humanities. But I wanted to get out of Texas and I couldn't turn down a job in California. So I said, <laughs> Yeah, I can do that. I can do that. And that's where it all began. Right. And I, I began with a group of graduate students at Pacifica. And I remember the way into what became the wounded researcher was the term research. Mm -hmm. I've always liked language and playing with words. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first time I was sitting with PhD students there trying to cobble together then a, a way of doing research. Um, you, you know, they were familiar with quantitative research uh, and qualitative coming out of the phenomenological tradition, uh, qualitative research, and to some degree familiar with hermeneutic styles of research. Um, but they weren't really well grounded. So I began by saying, let's start with thinking about the word research. And when I get stuck in something, I play with the word and see where that might lead me. And I said, if you hyphenate the word research, that suggests that we're searching for something that is to do a, a, a topic that we have already been claimed by. Mm -hmm. Searching for something that has already made its claim on us. Research, searching again. And that idea began then to develop uh, through many, many different variations and steps and uh, experiments. Um, 
And where that led me to was the notion that, yes, we are claimed by a topic. Topic chooses us, which is a very important theme in the, in the wounded researcher, as much as we think we might choose it. And it chooses us through our wounds, our complexes. Um, and so I developed a whole thing about from a Jungian point of view or a depth psychology point of view, that the topic that chooses us chooses us through some kind of connection between uh, our own inner kinds of uh, traumas where the topic can hook onto. So that in one sense, in researching a topic, we are also doing something that is healing ourselves. But I was very clear that I did not want to make research it was like a form of therapy, but it wasn't to be reduced to therapy. So in choosing a topic that chooses us, we begin to work out of our wounds, and then we transform a wound into a work. And that became a very important theme. How then do we work at something, out at something, work out something that has really left an indelible print on us? Um, so the first question then, really for anybody who's doing a research uh, topic, is um, what is it in your life that has called you into this? And that leads to another important theme in, in uh, the wounded researcher, that research is a vocation, uh, that you fall into a work, and the analogy here is like we fall in love, um, you know, we never wake up one morning and say, well, today I think I'll fall in love. Mm -hmm. The word in English and in other languages indicates you fall into something, not something that you plan. So we fall into our topic through something that makes us in service to uh, the connection between something in ourselves and something that is a piece of unfinished business in the topic itself. Oh, yes. And the unfinished business. Oh, I love I love that idea. But this this sense, this sense so strong in terms of the connection that a researcher has with their research. Um, and I would when, when I say when I came across your work, I was like, yes, this is what this is what I've been thinking. This is what I've been thinking of doing in terms of seeing people's work and the way in which they have a relationship to it. Yeah. And sometimes quite a, as you say, quite a, um, a problematic relationship with the material sometimes. Um, and this sense of the work inviting you in um, and, and working through you, that you are shaped by the work as much yeah. as you shape the work, I think That's is right. just yeah. gorgeous. Um, so, yeah, so let's get on to researchers' unfinished business because this is another concept which i think is really really powerful well the important thing for me about being uh being uh, concerned with the unfinished business in the work is that it makes research then if you think in terms of mythological themes because coming out of the tradition of both the humanities existential phenomenology and depth psychology there's always a kind of archetypal background or mythic background to whatever we do in our life, our love, and our work, et cetera. And so the unfinished business suggests that um, 
we are in service to something other than ourselves in doing this work. We are in service to the ancestors for whom this work is being done. Mm -hmm. And the mythic context here is the story of the grail. You know, in the story of the grail, whom does the grail serve? And whom does the work serve? So it becomes important then to think about not only the connection or the hook between your own womb and uh, for whom the work is in service to, those two then are linked together, but to pay particular close attention to those questions in terms of the process of deepening the work by going into the unconscious connections between you and the work, which is another thing that we can touch on. Mm. But, um, you know, the unfinished business is the uh, the business of the ancestors. And it even extends to when you do the work, you're finished with it, but the work is not done. Mm. And I tried to impress that on my doctoral students. And I said, uh, you know, there has to be a certain humility about being in service to something other than yourself. And of course, you should be proud that moment when your committee says you you have passed. We, we agree with your dissertation and now we can call you Dr. So-and-so. I said, if one really had true humility, they would say, I don't need the degree. I've been in service to something. Now I said, I can't do that. You know, <laughs> I want credit for the books I've written. And, and, and the wounded researcher is itself an example of what it means to be drawn into the work. We can right. talk about that if you wish. Yeah. And every book that I've ever written was a book that chose me rather mm. than I chose it. And mm. I could give many examples, good examples of that. Mm. Well, that's what I mean about being in service to something. And I love, I love this idea of, of serving the ancestors. And I became really interested. So I've been looking at kind of constellation therapy, Bert Hellinger's idea that we, we kind of carry material and seeing in some PhD um, research work, it's very clear, you know, people researching um, particular communities that they come from or particular yeah. moments in history that they're connect- they have a clear identification of their connection with. But then with other projects, seeing that actually, yeah, there's, there's things that, are st- that have been given to you, <laughs> that, that have come to you and that you're working through in this material. And that actually all of this is very permission giving because, mm. it, as you say, it means you're serving the work rather than, mm. and you talk in the book about, rather than having, the, having to have the ego in control, yeah. Yeah. going, look at me, I'm doing this, I've got to shake yeah. this up, I've got to do this. It's actually... This mm. idea has come. It has a form. It mm. knows what it wants to say. Yeah. How can I serve that? Right. And it really turns it on its head in a, in a very, as I say, permission-giving way. Yeah. Um, and I love the way that you talk about when when things are sort of when things are get, falling apart, getting difficult. Mm. That's when you can truly fall into yes the work. I, I just that- yeah. That is so true because um, when I I wanted to be in California and I said to the founder of the Institute, yeah, I can do this. Um, I think your your students, uh, audience will love this. So I began to work on it and it took me about 
five years to write this book in the way that it wanted to be written. And I hated it. I really hated it. And it would fall apart. It sent me back into analysis. <laughs> and I went to my Jungian analyst and I said, look, I hate this work. I don't want to do it. And he was really good. He said, uh, it's an internal imperative. And he was right. And I got very annoyed. And I said, I'm not paying you. I'm not here for you to tell me that I got to stay with it. I want to be relieved of it. He said, I'm sorry, I can't leave you. You have an obligation here. It's an internal psychological imperative. So I had to go back to the work. And then, you know, it's in four parts. Uh, then I thought, I'm finished. Um, I'm done with it. Finally. And it just didn't feel right. I was done with writing the book, but it wasn't done with me. And I had a series of dreams that led me then to realize I had to write that fourth section on implications. Implications for this approach to research where you are in service to something other than yourself leads to a different kind of ethical relationship between the researcher and the work. Another implication was the question, well, if you're really in service to writing down the soul of the work and writing up your work, if you're really in service to something that has unconscious roots, maybe we better think about how we write psychologically. So those two chapters came because the work wasn't done with me. And to write those last two took me about another 10 months. Wow. Wow. And again, it's this thing, isn't it, of, the, of of being shaped by the work rather than shaping the work. I just uh, right. and and the as you say, the humility that that brings. And um, but also, I also really want to just encourage people that the relief that it brings. That it's kind of I'm serving this. It's coming through me. Yes. <laughs> but you just mentioned there um, dreams. And right. this this the way of kind of unconscious of working with the unconscious when you're working on your research. And I would love you to talk um, a, a bit about dreams and the unconscious as ways of kind of, of working through the material. Well, if you take the. Uh, the uh, I want to go back to the thing about first being in service to something with a little tip here. Love it. Um, since you are really, you know, you are the vehicle for the work to speak itself and its unfinished business through you. Mm. So one of the things as an exercise is to keep a journal about your ongoing process. Yes. And continuously yes. out of a state of reverie or wandering in wonder, uh, write different dedications. To whom will you dedicate this book? Because, you know, uh, That'll change over time. And that's a clue in some ways to, uh, to whom the work is in service to, for whom are you doing the work. So that's a little clue to, to, mm. to keep the process going. But if you look at the title, The Wounded Researcher, Research with Soul in Mind. That's a way of saying that uh, like when you fall in love, you fall in love through your unconscious complexes. And uh, when I would teach my clinical courses or research courses, I would say research is like uh, falling in love. And uh, we know what happens when we fall in love. We fall in love through our projections and complexes uh, 
and expect the other to to fulfill something in us that we can't realize in ourselves. And when you fall in love and when you fall into a work, the descent into hell begins. <laughs> a little bit dramatic. Because if anybody has ever worked through the complexes and perplexities and shadows of love, they know, as the poet Rilke says, love is the most difficult work of all, apart mm-hmm. from which everything else you do in life is only a preparation. Mm-hmm. So in this context, I would recommend uh, this book by Veronica Goodchild, uh, a Confession. She is my wife, but apart from being my wife, I'm recommending it because it's a beautiful book called Eros and Chaos. And it really is one of the best books I've read about the complexities of love. So that might be of help too. So with soul in mind then means that uh, we are admitting upfront that uh, we are being led into the work. So soul takes us to the unconscious, to the unconscious dynamics that rule us in life, love, and work. And so how does how does how do the uncon- how does unconscious dynamics show themselves? Well, through things like dreams, symptoms, synchronicities, fantasies, all of the things that are not under the direct control of the thinking rational mind, mistakes and all of that. So I began to realize that in the process of doing this research and in the method, you had to make a place. Each researcher had to keep a record and make a place, not only the ongoing dedications, but of the dreams that come while they're doing the work. And I gave an example, the Wounded Researcher book insisted it wasn't finished. It was finished, but not done. And dreams led to the fourth part and implications. So pay attention to your dreams because that's a way in which uh, unconscious factors or dynamics uh, are asking you to pay attention to what the work wants from you and not just what you want from the work. We want from the work as conscious ego, get it done, do it as quickly as possible, get the degree, get on with your life. But if you're in service to something deeper than you, you have an ethical obligation to really allow the work to speak for itself. So you attend to your dreams. You attend to your symptoms too. And there are chapters in The Wounded Researcher where I give examples from my students of, as they were working, there was one guy, he fell downstairs, he had all kinds of things happen to him. I'm not encouraging that you do that, but I say, to my students, if that happens, don't treat it just as something not related. Look at it as possibly, and I'm not saying it is related, but possibly as a sign of something that you need to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Where were you in that moment when an accident or an illness interrupted the work? Mm-hmm. Where you are at the moment, like if you're stuck, that you have these series of dreams. So dreams, symptoms. And I encourage in the process called transference dialogues, make a time and a space to let the work speak to you mm-hmm. through active imagination. And we could talk about that, et cetera, or variations of active imagination. 
to let fantasy material come in and uh, anything that really seems outside the margins of your uh, conscious mind. You make a place for all of that. Dreams, symptoms, fantasies, reveries, active imagination, etc. Love that. I love the sense of just welcoming it all. Mm. That is all part of the of the process of the research process. It's very kind of holistic perspective, and as you say, recognizing the soul aspect, recognizing the soul work, mm. um, and as you say, this sense of of your PhD process as a process of transformation, as a vocational process, as a calling. Like mm. it's this is important stuff, people. <laughs> it's it's an important moment and it will change you as I I always say to people that the PhD is a transformational process and you get a thesis as a bonus but that's a good way to put it (laughs) but actually it, it it really is it there's there is magic afoot um oh thank you so much for this and there was so much more wisdom in in this in this work um, and I'm going to put the um, details of the of the book in the show notes. And I really would recommend this to people to have a look at, because, as you say, you've got there's um, case studies within that, yeah. too, of of, of um, people that uh, um, students that you have worked with um, the, and your own process too. you reflect on your own process in terms of how this can work in practice. Mm. I think particularly if people are, are stuck moments of stuckness because mm. as you say that stuck moment can be a real gift because it can take you somewhere absolutely in fact the stuck moments are the moments when your will is being challenged yeah. by what yeah. the work itself wants yes so. yes mm. they are golden and i think p- people people you know it instinctive people know that instinctively because they feel the tension in it mm. um but to kind of to go into it um mm takes courage i think it takes courage um but there, there's such wonders to be found so if, if that is you right now we're we're all here for you do it take the step <laughs> do it um now after such a beautiful conversation slightly embarrassed to ask this <laughs> have you got a top tip or some top tips for us yeah uh, yeah, one of the things that uh, I would really like to say is that um, the process of transference dialogues is really important. So, you know, the book is about the theory part and then the process part, transference dialogues, based on Jung's notion of active imagination. And that's detailed. And then part three is method. And then part four is implications. But I do want to say that you got to attend to the process, but you don't have to follow Jung's notion of active imagination. I myself am not very good at it. Mm -hmm. So all I mean to say by the process is that you find a way to let go of the work and you can do that in reverie. So I find that in place of active imagination, let yourself wander. So when I was walking in nature or doing something different, I would slip into a state of reverie. And then that opens the doors for the work to kind of come in. And I pay attention to the fantasies. So I wanted to add that piece. 
Now for a, a top tip, like you've asked. <laughs> um, I think the, the most important tip is to realize that this approach that we've talked about that makes a place for the work uh, and what it wants from you uh, has an implication because traditional research always says to be really objective, the researcher has to get out of the way, the neutral or absent researcher. Mm. And even the phenomenological tradition that I was trained in at Duquesne says, well, there's a way then to bracket the researcher's prejudices. That's not enough because bracketing doesn't deal with the unconscious forces or processes. So in the implications, uh, one chapter is on ethics. And here's the tip that true objectivity comes from deep subjectivity. You are truly objective about the work when you go into what those complexes are that would keep the work from fulfilling itself through you. And again, here, I would use the analogy of love because I think people can understand that. You really come to know the other. Let's call the other the beloved. Only when you've worked through your own need for the other to be what you need them to be. And that means working through your denial of what's in yourself, splitting it off and projecting it onto the other. You know, like uh, a man might see in the woman that he falls in love with something like, oh, she's my mommy. Or, you know, those kinds of examples. Yeah. Yeah. A woman will say, well, this is my uh, hero, my savior, etc." We fall in love through our complexes and we know how hard it is to love the other the beloved for whom he or she is, how difficult that is and how much work that takes. And it means the painful excavation of what your own wounds and complexes are. And the same thing applies to research. True love comes from knowing your own deep complexes instead of projecting it onto the other. Research as vocation is falling in love with the work that wants something from you, and you become truly objective about what the work is and what it wants by going through your own subjectivity, going down and looking at all of those dreams and complexes that get in the way of the work speaking to you. If the relationship between a researcher and a work is a complex one, in the Jungian sense, if we are chosen by a work as much as we think we might choose it, then a key tip is to ask and to wonder as a start, what has drawn you into this work? What compels you to do it? What attracts you to it? What's the fascination that you have with this topic? That's the tip of getting into knowing what the work wants from you. Ask that question. I I've got goosebumps. I love it. Robert, thank you so, so much. Um, Thank you for the for the work that you um, have done. Thank you for the insights that you've offered us today. Um, and thank you for just taking the time to be here with us. Well, it was my pleasure. And it was very nice to meet you. And if I can be of any further help, please do contact me. Thank you for being interested in the work. Oh, one thing I might say, if students are going to order the book, the new copy 
has a different cover on it. And um, you got, I think you showed me your copy. It's a yes. red covered copy. I didn't notice, and in fact, I have to call Rutledge. The new copy has a different image. And if you buy the new copy, which is a blue copy, blue cover with a different image, you're going to run into something that sounds strange where I talk about. Yes, you talk about the cover, don't you? Yeah, and it doesn't fit in the new copy. So just alert them to that and say I'm correcting it. And in the old copy, it refers to the image on yes. that copy. Yes, yes. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you all for listening. 